Doctor's Kitchen. Recipes, health, lifestyle. So I actually wrote three or four days a week from midnight to 3.30 in the morning if I didn't have a class to teach until the afternoon. And so there's a lot of action. And I found if you combine willingness to take action and the pictures you're making in your head, then sometimes really amazing things can happen. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast. The show about food, lifestyle, medicine, and how to improve your health today. I'm Dr. Rupi, your host. I'm a medical doctor. I study nutrition, and I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Join me and my expert guests where we discuss the multiple determinants of what allows you to lead your best life. Sometimes when the spirit is soothed with a little extra care, the body returns to balance all by itself. It's something that I firmly believe in. And it's why today we're talking about why Woo Woo works with Dr. David Hamilton. He's been on the podcast before, but as a reminder, he completed a PhD in organic chemistry and David worked in research and development in the pharmaceutical industry, developing drugs for cardiovascular disease and cancer and inspired by the placebo effect that we get into today and how some people's conditions would improve because they believed a placebo was a real drug. David actually left the industry to write books and educate people on how they can harness their mind and emotions to improve their mental and physical health. Now today, I want you to keep an open mind. We talk about crystals, energy biofields, visualization, the law of attraction, and a bunch of other concepts that make the skeptical part of my brain nervous to even consider talking about. But after reading the book, Why Woo Woo Works, The Surprising Science Behind Meditation, Reiki, Crystals, and Other Alternative Practices, it's really opened up my mind to the possibility of why these practices hold merit. Today, we talk about the mechanisms behind the placebo effect, positive and pessimistic consultations in general practice, something that I can definitely relate to, visualization and the immune system, nature, fractals, and responses to pain with plants, And then we also go into Reiki, biofield energy therapies, what that even means, and the emotional contagion via mirror neurons. This is going to be a really interesting podcast. If you're new to this, I do recommend the book. It's a fascinating read. It's full of references, full of interesting studies that, you know, might just change your mind. You can download the Doctor's Kitchen app, don't forget, for free via the App Store. We're working on an Android version right now. Every week I send you a recipe, something to listen to, something to read, something to watch sometimes on my newsletter, Eat, Listen, Read. You can sign up at thedoctorskitchen.com. And remember, you can find all this information and more at thedoctorskitchen.com on the podcast notes page. Uh, but for now, this is my conversation with Dr. David Hamilton. Please enjoy. Before we get started, here is a quick word from the people who make this podcast possible. Thanks so much for sending the book, first off. Um, I'd love to get into this. I just love your writing style and, you know, it's almost like 
you you sort of tease us into the the world of woo woo, which we'll want to get to the the definition of in a second. But you sort of tease us, and I think everyone can sort of understand meditation, mind over matter, all these different elements, and it gets like increasingly, increasingly like more uncomfortable i think for the skeptical reader and like my woo-woo detector is going beep, 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 like as soon as i go like like throughout the book but it's it's brilliant it's absolutely fascinating so what why do we start off with woo-woo what do, what do we mean by woo-woo woo-woo has been defined as unconventional beliefs regarded as having little or no scientific basis especially those relating to spirituality mysticism and alternative medicine and and so what you you've been studying these different sort of modalities of of healing for uh, for for a while now. You know, we spoke about it on on the pod uh, last time. But what was your entry point into this sort of? I, I want to call it a way of thinking, uh, a, a way of sort of uh, having a nuanced appreciation of, of the of the science that we have available to us. What what was your what was your entry point into this? To be honest, I I had two entry points, one more scientific than the other. The first one for me was my mum had postnatal partum depression after my youngest sister was born in the mid-70s. And I remember finding a book at the library in the school when I just started high school. I'd never been in a library before. And, you know, I, I bumped a shelf or something and the book just, it was, it fell off. It was The Magic Power of Your Mind by a gentleman called Walter Germain. And I remember thinking, I bet that can help my mum. And you, I didn't know you're supposed to join a library. You know, you get your little yellow card and stamp it. I thought you borrow books. So I'd never been in a library. So I just <laughs> yeah. put it in my bag and took it away. We, we still have the book. <laughs> I was 11 years old. But, you know, it, it didn't cure depression in a day. But you know what it did do, Rupi, is it gave my mum tools, insights, and strategies that <laughs> helped her to navigate a course through some of the difficult times, through those difficult days. One of the things my mum learned was positive affirmations. Another thing that she learned was meditation. Although back then, it, most people called it relaxation. Nowadays, we, we mostly refer to it as meditation or mindfulness, that style. But I remember it was so helpful to my mum. It, mostly for helping to calm her nerves because my mum was struggling with depression and anxiety and and, and these things were immensely helpful. I remember my mum walking through the house sometimes when she was maybe feeling a bit kind of anxious and she was going, I can do it, I can do it. And she was pumping her fist and she would say to me, every day and every way I'm getting better and better, which is my first introduction to the affirmations of Emil Kui, but you, who's, you created that one over 120 years ago. And so that was an entry point for me that was just through observation and experience. But, you know, maybe 15 years or so, maybe 15 or so years later, after my PhD, I'm working in, you know, uh, AstraZeneca, actually, and I'm develop, helping develop drugs for cardiovascular disease and cancer. And it was observation of the placebo effect. It was looking at trial data and then going into the library and further researching it myself. And this was an entry point for me about the mind-body connection because I remember I was so captivated by the placebo effect that, you know, patients, half the patients on a trial get the actual drug, half get a sugar pill. And I would ask my colleagues and, and nobody understood the placebo effect. Then this was the late 90s. 
And even in a professional science environment, no one understood it. And if I said, you know, isn't that amazing? They would say, oh, they're not really getting better. They just think they're getting better. And it was just kind of dismissed. You're not in an unkind way, not in a, you know, people who believe in are idiots kind of thing. It was just like nobody understood it. And it wasn't that the research wasn't available because it was, but it just never occurred to anyone that there could be research because who would, in a professional science environment, who would imagine that believing something could fiddle around with your brain chemistry? So I did exactly that. I went into the library and I started looking into it and discovering that research had already been done showing that when you believe something, it's not just all in the mind. The belief itself actually, to an extent, fiddles around with your brain chemistry. So for example, a person who takes a placebo, believing it to be a painkiller, the, the belief itself or the expectation that the pain will go away triggers a change in the brain, causes the brain to produce its own painkillers, endogenous opiates, you know, the natural, the brain's natural version of morphine. And that substance then delivers the reduction in pain. So it's not a, an imaginary reduction in pain. It's a real reduction in pain produced by real substances in the brain which are triggered by expectation or belief. And that was mind-blowing to me. And I, I was mm. telling all my colleagues, and and some of them, I think, tolerated me. You know, we were all friends. <laughs> we drunk pints in the bar. But no one really was interested in understanding. It was just a wee quirk. You know, placebo effect was a nuisance. It wasn't something that you would be interested in and in in developing and in, in, in somehow using for the benefit of someone in our professional environment, it was a nuisance. It was something, you know, how do we get rid of it kind of thing? Because you mm. want to see how well a medicine is working. So it's really not something anyone had any interest in, except for me. Yeah. yeah. And I think most people have, have come across the, at least the idea that the placebo or the placebo effect can be seen in um, pain, uh, where you're given uh, an inert substance or a substance that you know doesn't have a um, an analgesic in it, um, and and told that it is a powerful painkiller, and that elicits that um, literal response in, in the brain, which has the um, the pain relieving effect. But wh where else do we see this placebo effect? Because I think what I certainly came came uh, uh, across from the book is just a wide variety and application of uh, elements that do have placebo, but as we'll discuss a little bit further, some some other um, explanations behind. But but where else do we see the placebo effect? You know, most of the research has been done on pain, uh, even Parkinson's disease, uh, depression, anxiety, these sorts of things. In fact, so, some of the, the really amazing research in placebo on Parkinson's showed that over a period of five days, uh, research, this was led by a, a, research, a professor, Fabrizio Benedetti, at the University of Turin, one of the, the top placebo researchers in the world. And they were able to actually phase out an anti-Parkinson's drug, apomorphine, over five days by dropping the dose while incrementally increasing placebo. And over five days, dropping apomorphine, increasing placebo, you know, 75%, 50, 25 apomorphine, 25, 50, 75% placebo, swapping them around. And after five days, getting a full placebo response from saline that you got from apomorphine. A lot of research has been done on Parkinson's, a lot of it or in depression. I mean, there's limitations 
to the placebo effect. You wouldn't say someone says, if you take this pill, you'll grow an extra arm. You know, it's, you know, there's, there's limits to how we understand it. And there's limits to what the brain is capable of producing. But, but to an extent, there is a heck of a lot of breadth in there. There's a lot of conditions that the placebo effect impacts to an extent. You know, it's not necessarily a curative thing. It might not cure someone of arthritis, but there's a lot of research that shows that people who believe they actually had an incision, uh, they actually had surgery for arthritis, but it was really called sham. It was a, it was a fake surgery. They go on to run and do everything as they would normally do. It didn't mean that the arthritis wasn't there, but somehow their brain and body was doing what it had to do to nullify the the seeming symptoms of it. So it, I think there's so much in it that's yet to be tapped into and, and used. It could be of, of really fantastic benefit to people. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, one thing that stood out for me in, um, you put so many studies in this book as well. It's fascinating. I've got like a long list of uh, of references that I need to check up on and and uh, and, and read my, myself because they're, they're absolutely fascinating. One of them that stood out for me was the, um, the differences in consultation styles between general practitioners. And you have some who have a positive sort of way of uh, discussing topics and treatments with their patients and others who are sort of unsure or maybe a little bit on the pessimistic side. And the results of those and the outcomes actually being a lot more positive if they had a positive consultation style. So that certainly like speaks to me about what we should be teaching general practitioners, given that we see 20, 30, 40 patients uh, every day. But I, I guess my question is um, sort of similar to what you just alluded to there with uh, the impact of the placebo effect. Where, where is the line and how far can we go when it comes to harnessing the placebo effect? Uh, and, and how do we use this almost in conjunction with all the other uh, elements that we have within medicine as well? I mean, you, you just mentioned the, the sort of piece uh, PCDR, I think it's called, the placebo-controlled dose response, and, and how you can utilize... Yeah, placebo-controlled dose reduction. Reduction, sorry, yeah. Um, so, yeah, wh where is the line, and, and how do we actually... How, how do we, how, how do we uh, go about determining where the line is? Do you know, I, I actually don't think there's a solid line. I, I think there's, you know, there's a, a space, and, and it's va it varies from condition to condition and from person to person, and it, it depends, really... On, on a number of factors. It depends on, as you've said, the consultation style, the personality of a doctor. It would depend also on the condition. Like you could get a placebo effect from almost anything, really, uh, that would impact a condition to an extent, maybe not the hard end of it, some severe conditions, but it might uh, impact the softer end of it, you know, some of the actual symptoms that, that are manifesting. So, so that rather than there being an actual line, there's probably a, a space in there that, could well be tapped into for, for a number of, of different things, you know, and it's just uh, some of it comes down to not just even the consultation style, but empathy. You know, a lot of research shows that, in fact, here, here's a, a study, 178 uh, men with prostate cancer. Uh, and those who had been treated by a, what was called the high empathy doctor, and this is how the scientists, by, by studying their consultation style, they were able to determine who's a high empathy doctor and who's a low empathy doctor. And they found that even three months later, those treated with a high empathy doctor had far higher natural killer cells in the bloodstream 
And it happened for a number of reasons. Partly, and this is all part of the this can all be part of the placebo response. Part of it is a high empathy doctor is more reassuring. So what happens is the person comes away thinking, you know, I'm going to the doctor said, you know, if I do all these things, I should be okay. Uh, you know, I've got this kind of thing and they're reassuring me. So that belief itself encourage, actually causes physical effects in the body. But secondly, it encourages the patient to do more of what's good for them. The patient's more likely then to adopt a healthier diet and lifestyle because they've been reassured. So they're more likely to do things without realizing even that they're suddenly changing their diet. They have a wee bit more hope kind of thing. Uh, and, and so plus empathy itself relaxes the nervous system. So treated by a high empathy doctor, then they come away, the nervous system's more relaxed because they've been reassured. And that then allows the body's natural regenerative systems, healing systems to work more optimally, like the immune system, for example, pain management systems. So, so there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of parts to the placebo effect. It's not just, that, that would fit within that, that this is why I was meaning it's, it's very broad. It's not a single line because there's lots of different parts that, that fit into it. But certainly empathy and reassurance is, is very significant. And there's a lot of research that looks at the, the importance of empathy and, and how it can affect really the outcome for people. Yeah, I, 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 I totally agree. And I think that the empathetic approach is, um, is healing in itself. And I think this is almost why you have um, a lot of grounds for skeptics to be skeptical, because everything that we we discuss in this sort of realm is it just seems very messy and it's not a a very clear-cut way of testing these specific interventions like placebo can also be visualization affirmations positive energy the the niceties of the consultation practice itself um even concepts that you go into later on in the book with regards to telepathy and you know positive uh, energy that you're giving to the person in front of you all these different elements that almost provide the entourage effect of uh of 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 all these different sort of like um uh, ways in which to to deal with with patients so this is why i think it's quite hard when you compare it to the kind of trials that you've been involved in in the early part of your career when you give one substance and you test it in a randomized control manner and you put that against something else that you know not to have the same analog or compound in. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, I, I, I'm glad you asked that question because I think of when I was trained in, you know, pharmace in pharmaceutical sciences, I, I guess, if you think of it broadly in that way, What's ingrained in us, you know, when, in fact, the first, my first introduction to that was when I, before I did my PhD, I, my degree specialised in biological and medicinal chemistry. And that was when I first heard the concept of an active ingredient. And when you're an organic chemist, which ultimately is where I was trained in, the goal is to build a physical substance, a drug. And that involves assembling atoms in a particular way into a very unique shape that's been figured out in one way or another that this is what does it. And this is called the active ingredient. It's ingrained in us that when a person takes a medicine, the only thing that matters is the active ingredient. So in a paracetamol, there's paracetamol is the active ingredient, but there's a, there's half a dozen other things there as well. Otherwise, because you've only got a tiny amount of paracetamol, 
the rest of it is stuff that bulks it up, helps it to dissolve differently. And so, you know, there's a range of things called excipients. But it was ingrained in us, there's a single active ingredient. But when you start looking into the broader placebo effect and empathy, the mind-body connection, all these things, you realize there's actually a lot of active ingredients and all of them contribute. And not just in a, you know, we, we sometimes think of, you know, the importance of empathy and even the, the environment. We sometimes think of it in a, as part of a holistic thing and not in a doctor's surgery, but it matters in a doctor's surgery as well. We just didn't realize to what extent it matters. We're now realizing that empathy, for example, is huge. It does actually matter quite a lot. So there's a lot of active ingredients. And I would say it becomes then more tricky, especially if you're not testing a drug. If you're looking at the benefits of, let's say, an alternative practice, then more of these active ingredients are present in the alternative practice because they don't have the acute effect of a drug because the drug effect itself is acute. But you've got other active ingredients like empathy, setting, even whether the environment, that the room has plants in it. I mean, research shows, for example, you put a, two identical rooms, hospital or clinical rooms, and give and subject people as part of a study to pain, right? Just a simple pain test. Pain thresholds are higher and recovery faster if, a, if the identical rooms, one has plants in it. And isn't that amazing? And that's because plants, green nature itself is recognized by, by humans. Over, it's ingrained over eons to, to cause a calming effect. But that's an active ingredient as well. But these subtle or active ingredients become more important when you have a therapy that lasts longer than a 10-minute consultation. And so it becomes more difficult to, to measure just the impact of one acute substance versus nothing at all. Uh, and now you've got to, you, you go, so it is tricky to build it all. And so what, what sometimes what you have to do is say, let's take all of this together combined with a therapy and see if it helps someone rather than just measuring the impact of an individual little thing. Let's, all of these things are helpful, so let's use all of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, now you mentioned um, the plants in hospital rooms. I did want to talk about that because I, I love this sort of uh, the concept of how we have a natural affinity to fractals. And uh, there, there are some really interesting studies that you talked about in the book where, you know, people who had the same intervention, i.e. a cholecystectomy, a removal of the gallbladder, for example, some uh, had a brick wall to look at, and then some people had a park to look at, and they measured their responses to pain afterwards, and they found the park viewers had a, had a, had a better pain response. And you, you talk about fractals in the environment and how, you know, we've, we've developed over eons to sort of have that sort of... Um, that the affinity to them. I wonder if you could go into that a bit more because I found that element absolutely fascinating. Yeah, me, me too. In fact, you know, I, I stumbled upon that accidentally. You know, my, my, my partner is doing a, an open university degree in philosophy and psychology. And it was one of her, uh, you know, one of her modules I had to study, an entire textbook on the effect of nature. And I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. I'd never come across this. And really what, what happens is for eons of evolution, for eons, our ancient ancestors lived in, you know, natural settings. You know, in fact, we, we, emer we you know, emerged out of what is now Botswana. So for eons, our ancestors lived in areas that are green, you know, green grass, green trees with the sound of birdsong and the sound of crickets and stuff at nighttime with blue sky. 
And so what happened is if you compare the general stress levels of us in modern humans to them, you'll find that they were pretty much chilled out most of the time. Yeah, we sometimes think, oh, what a hostile environment they lived in from time to time. They're not being threatened with saber-toothed tigers every day. You know, for the most part, our ancient ancestors sat about twiddling their thumbs, pretty much just sleeping and not doing very much. Their nervous system was very relaxed, very chilled. The modern humans, you, we're, we're highly strung all the time because you're thinking, you know, I finished this podcast, what, I need to go to Tesco and I need to get this and, oh God, I, need, I forgot that email yesterday. And most humans are on edge all the time. The nervous system's spiked all the time. So, But for our ancestors, for eons, they're pretty chilled out. And what happened is a connection, a correlation began to form over a long time between the state of the nervous system and the, physio- the, the perception of the environment at that time. So what our ancestors were experiencing in the environment, what was, tri- what was connected to this calm nervous system. So over eons, that correlation occurred. And so nowadays, for us modern humans, the moment you see a green space, you know, blue sky, trees, uh, grass, the tweeting of birds, the, even the, the noise of crickets at nighttime, that ancient effect kicks in and the human nervous system tends toward relaxation. And the longer you're in nature, the more, the more we begin to relax. And that's, that's what gave birth to some of these scientific studies, even some of them that stimulate the nervous system and measure exactly how long it takes to calm. And if people are, can even see a green space or even listen to birdsong, the nervous system uh, recovers faster. And that's why some studies find that hospital patients recover faster if their window offers them a view of nature rather than a brick wall or a hospital car park, for example. It's incredible, isn't it? Yeah, that's absolutely incredible. And, uh, you know, I think about this through the lens of cost-effective interventions that may have a significant impact, you know, whether it's it's someone in hospital or someone who's trying to help themselves uh, in in the community environment. Um, And you have this line in the book that I had to write down. Uh, It's called, it goes, humans have become like tuning forks that vibrate sweetly to the sounds of nature. That resonated with me so much because... Every day I've got like a, a little dog and I have to take her outside and stuff. And um, I've, I've tried to uh, reduce the use of my AirPods just so I can listen to the swaying of the trees and, and you know, the, the sights and actually put more of my attention into the natural surroundings that I'm very privileged to have quite close to me. Um, and that just sort of brought it all home for me and, and learning a bit about how we've, we've been attuned and we've, you know, we've evolved alongside nature, just, just put everything in, into context. So, yeah, no, I, I think it's, um, it, it's absolutely fascinating. Yeah. And, and actually what you, what you said a moment ago about fractal, I've got, I've got a wee dog as well. And I, I live in Dunblane, central Scotland, and there's lots of green space. It's actually a green belt uh, where I live. So it's, it's absolutely brilliant. For that, but you know what you said about fractals, it reminded me when you say you look you look at the trees and stuff. The human nervous system even can spot the difference between real and fake, and that's where fractals come in. Because some scientists investigating, you know, why is this that we are attuned to nature, and it's because uh, most of nature is fractal. You know, like trees. You know, a tree grows like that and then it branches off and then the branches branch off and then those branches branch off. And it's like the growth rules say, okay, the tree's got a wee rule somewhere in its genes that say, okay, now we need to branch. And the wee rule runs again 
and it branches again. And so most of nature is fractal. And so our brains and nervous systems have become attuned, if you will, to recognizing something natural by its fractal component. And that's why if you give something that's real versus something that's a fake version, the human nervous system reacts better to something that's real because our brains actually recognize the fractal component, which is something inherent to nature itself, isn't that? That blows me away, actually. Yeah, yeah, that's, that, that, that is, yeah, that really does blow me away. And it kind of explains uh, some other studies that I've come across. I'm not too sure if you mentioned this in your book or not, um, or maybe it's some, another one, but uh, if people are exposed to urbanized environments, uh, either in a video or they, they watch something and then they do a test that tests their cognitive ability, those are significantly hindered compared to if they were exposed to green environments or natural environments. And I, I, I remember looking at it, I was like, wow, that's that's incredible. It just means that the cogs in our brain are just sort of uh, oiled by by looking at natural environments. And, and you know, it, it just it enhances everything else, whether it be our ability to cope with pain or ability to think clearly, all those different elements. So, yeah, nature is uh, is, is certainly a drug. I certainly, certainly, I mentioned that study along with even studies that were looking at the the the, the crime rates in areas, and they put in some trees into an area, and just because the trees themselves and the bushes and flowers had a calming effect, it was incredible that there was the the crime rate was lower. But another study similar, all part of that same chapter actually, scientists got people to do a walk around a historic city in the Czech Republic and and they timed them and they were listening to bird one group was listening to bird songs, one was listening to urban sounds like traffic and all that kind of stuff. And they found that those who were listening to traffic sounds walked significantly faster and completed a one kilometer circuit through the city much faster than those who were listening to bird song, who actually found themselves the whole body was just slowing down. And relaxing, and the only difference that they walked the exact same route around this historic city. The only difference was what did they hear in their mind, in their heads, was a urban environment or birdsong. And I th- amazing, you know. Yeah. Ever, you know, ever since I came across that research, when I'm working, I actually have on my phone natural sound play, <laughs> yeah. and I wrote half of this book while listening to natural sounds that's brilliant I, you know what i uh when i read that in the book i told my partner straight away because we have this like ongoing uh, uh argument about how i walk really really slow whenever in the park and she's like walking you know at least like five miles <laughs> more than me like up, up uh, ahead of me when we're walking the dog and she's like you walk like a pensioner you walk so slow and like Sweetie, I'm just like really attuned to the environment. This study shows when they, they walk people around this historical environment, they were just like just really taking everything in. So you just need to take yeah. in more of the nature. Um, yeah. This is on you. It's not on me. <laughs> <Nice one. laughs> um, I, wanted, uh, I, I, want, I wanted to talk about um, uh, one of the other studies that you mentioned here uh, from, from close to home, Lincolnshire NHS Hospital. And uh, the just the visualization techniques they taught patients who were um, uh, undergoing chemotherapy, um, imagining things like the macrophages, the the some some of the immune cells as part of our immune system, gobbling up cancer cells and increasing their immune response, and that was actually measured to have a significant response. And, and they did some other sort of visualization techniques that were 
pretty incredible. So, like, what, 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 it, what's going on there? Yeah. So, so in, in that particular study, it was women who had breast cancer, and they were all going through, you know, the same treatment. So, surgery, radiotherapy, uh, chemotherapy, and so they all had exactly the same treatment. But half of them, in addition to that treatment, not instead of, but in addition to, they were also taught visualization practices where, as I say, they imagine, you know, macrophages gobbling up things, or many of them visualized the immune cells as piranha fish or Pac-Man destroying cancer cells. But for each person, visual was some, in their own way, visualized the immune system destroying the cancer cells. And, and what you found is your, their immune system was heightened. In one study, their immune system is significantly heightened. In other studies, there was a real positive effect. And, um, and what happens is, in some ways, when you imagine something, there's a fine line between real and imaginary as far as your brain's concerned. And lots of research is now weighing into this and saying, in, in many ways, your brain doesn't distinguish all that much between real and imaginary. So when you imagine something or do it, to your brain, it's very similar. And, and I think in the last podcast, we, I gave an example of a people, a, a seminal Harvard research study where volunteers played piano notes each day for five days and another set of volunteers imagined playing the same notes each day for five days and the changes in the brain were identical and you couldn't tell the difference. And now other research has done something similar and they've got people to eat cubes of cheese or imagine eating cubes of cheese and the overall impact on appetite was exactly the same. In other words, even imaginary, imagining eating, providing you imagine eating, you know, bite for bite, chew for chew for the same duration, was actually having the same impact on the brain to an extent as actually eating itself. In other studies, there's several studies, even let people get physically stronger by imagining working out at the gym. And even people who have injuries, one, one study even had people uh, who weren't injured, but they were immobilized with a plaster cast for a month and the scientists measured the reduction in strength. And most people lost, you know, 45% strength. But half of them, in addition to having the plaster cast, they were to imagine pushing their hand against the cast. So imagine and strengthen the wrist. They only lost 23% strength. They lost half the strength. And all they did was visualize. And so, but what this study did is show maybe the same principles apply to the immune system. When you're when you're visualizing the immune system doing something, then it, it, maybe it seems to be that in some way the immune system is responding to what you're imagining and, and beginning to work in the way according to what, you, what you're actually imagining. And it's astonishing because other research shows the immune system is actually quite sensitive to how you feel. And it's also quite sensitive to psychological states, but it's also sens sensitive to relaxation, sensitive now, we know, to imagery. So that study was born out of a conglomeration of all of these observations. And someone at a hospital thought, let's see then. There is previous research showing that visualizing uh, secretory immunoglobulin A, or SIGA, uh, it's, a wee, it's a double Y-shaped antibody. You know, antibodies kind of Y-shaped. It's a double Y-shaped and it's the first part of your immune system that responds if you, say, drop a piece of food and you pick it up, it's contaminated. SIG is the first part of the immune system that responds to that. And people visualizing, multiplying it, were actually able to increase the amount of SIGA uh, in their saliva uh, compared to people just doing a relaxation. 
uh, techniques. So all of these studies together weighed into that and scientists thought, let's see then that there seems to be evidence that visualizing the immune system can impact it. So let's test it with people who've got cancer, but make sure all everyone's getting treatment, not instead of, and I make that point really strong because sometimes people get, who are skeptical of these kind of things assume that what you're saying is visualize instead of medicine, but never saying that. We're always saying do whatever intervention is necessary, but visualize as well. Because you you know you don't meditate instead of sleeping. You sleep and you meditate. You know you don't uh, go out for a run and stuff instead of eating. You know you do all of these good things together. So what I'm I'm suggesting, and I've made that point all the way through the book, really, is you know alternative practices aren't instead of doing mainstream practices. There's stuff that we can do in addition to them to get an overall maybe an enhanced effect. And this visualization study was a very clear demonstration. The immune response uh, to cancer was far higher in those who visualized versus those who just did had the treatment itself. Yeah, yeah. That, it, it marries quite nicely with actually the, a topic that you bring up uh, a lot later on in the book, the law of attraction, which, um, I mean, I've been fascinated with. Uh, obviously, I've read The Secret. I've spoken to Tara Swart on the podcast here about manifestation. Um and you have some interesting insights into the law of attraction. It's it's not just visualizing it blankly. It's also uh, where you're focusing your attention and also uh, combined with actions. You use the example of uh, David Beckham, for example, or I think it was Sally Gunner earlier on in the in the book as well. You know, who who visualized. Uh, the the winning that the sort of um, uh, the actions that have taken that and, and combined with the action. I, I wonder if you could talk to me a bit about the law of attraction and how you advise people utilize this this tool because um, I'm personally fascinated with it and I'll, I'll give you an example of like how I'm putting it into practice myself. Yeah, I, I find it fascinating as well. And what I, I I always say is sometimes when people think of what is generally called the law of attraction you assume that I just have to close my eyes and meditate on picturing something and it will just materialize out of thin air and land in my lap. And that is cannon fodder for people who are skeptical. You know, and what, what I often say is you, co- you can combine mindset and what you're visualizing with taking physical action. I, you know, one thing I wrote in the book, it was a, I remember when I got my, after I had a few books published and I remember someone, one of my friends said to me, look how you manifested that, you know, you had a goal to get a book published and wow, look at you now. But what they didn't see was the blood, sweat and tears of actions. You know, I wrote most of that book in the middle of the night because I was, I was teaching, I, I was a chemistry lecturer, which I, a job I did for a year, not long after I left the pharmaceutical industry. And so the only time I could find was the middle of the night. So I actually wrote three or four days a week from midnight to 3.30 in the morning if I didn't have a class to teach until the afternoon. And so there's a lot of action. And I found if you combine willingness to take action and the pictures you're making in your head, then sometimes really amazing things can happen. But one of the points I did make about the law of attraction is that some research has looked at a you know, is is consciousness produced by the brain or is the brain in the entire world an experience of consciousness? And there is a growing body of evidence to suggest it's the latter, despite how much our ingrained assumptions are it's the former. 
And and some research found that by, by studying people who had frontal lobe damage in the brain, which created an automatic sense of what's called absorption. In other words, they feel with particular frontal lobe, lobe damage, and this was study was done by a neurologist, particular frontal lobe damage, it makes them feel absorbed at one with with nature, with, with whatever, whether they're even looking at a computer screen, they actually feel somehow you and I look at a computer screen and it's clearly detached from you. But to them, people with particular frontal lobe damage, the line between you and reality is ever so blurred and there's a, a feeling of connectedness with everything. And they found that those people could actually subtly influence physical states in the world. I mean, I'm not talking, they've just imagined something and someone's going to levitate up off the ground. Not Nothing like that, but very, very subtle things they could cause impact in their immediate physical environment. Again, I'm not talking about levitating pens rolling across tables like you see in the movies, but very, very subtle things. If you know what to look for, what to test for, very, very subtle things. And it occurred predominantly with people with particular frontal lobe damage because previous research had suggested that if as well as visualising an action, you actually can try to feel as if it's really there. Bring all of your sensory your, your sensory modalities and feel like what you're imagining to be true really is true and put yourself in it so that you emotionally feel it, then lots of books like The Secret and other books have been written suggesting that ingredient matters quite a lot. So when I was researching uh, through the book on other subjects, actually, prayer, ESP, telepathy, that kind of stuff, that seemed to be a very important ingredient. It was felt connection with things. And I think the frontal lobe damage study was a real pivotal, a pivotal study. It's something that stands as a bridge that begins to say, oh, I can actually see now how these kind of things work. Because here's a really solid piece of research done by a neurologist who was sceptical of this kind of stuff, demonstrating, say, predicting that, well, if it's true that feeling connected with something should have an, is an ingredient for this, then let's pick people who that is already a given. They have frontal lobe damage, so they already feel connected. And let's see if we can take them with other people and see anything that's different and how they affect their environment. And there was a very clear difference in that study. On the subject of connection, I, I definitely want to go, go into that a bit more. Um, I, I, I totally agree with you about the 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 subject of manifestation and then like speaking to people and and them not really seeing the the sort of behind the scenes when i wrote my first book i was working full-time as um, a general practitioner and locuming at the weekends and the only time i could actually write my cookbook and test the recipes and do all the research was outside of working hours so i'd be working until like 10 11 p.m uh, you know, and then getting up the next day and just and trundling off to general practice. I mean, it's just, it's tons of work, but like I, I did hold this sort of idea and a sort of vague visual of like what it could be and, and where it eventually went. Um, so you you know, whether you call that manifestation or the law of attraction, I, I'm I'm not too sure. But but one thing actually that stood out to me in that chapter was a quote I think uh, you, you put in from another researcher about how the commonest misuse of perception is a focus on what you do not have. And I actually find myself doing that sometimes because uh, at, at, the, at the, this point uh, of the recording, I, 
my my app launched in January. Um, I have a, an agency that do all the tech team and and, and all the all the technical stuff which I direct. Uh, and what I'm what I'm missing is uh, an internal tech team, uh, an internal chief of technology, an internal UX designer. And my focus has actually been. And this really did resonate with me. My focus is actually on what I do not have rather than what I do have right now and actually what I want to achieve. And actually just reading those words have now sort of shifted my uh, focus on what I want to visualize and what I want to pay attention to. So uh, yeah, I, I think it, it, it's certainly super important. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And I, I think when you start to think about the law of attraction, I mean, despite disagreements between some camps and other camps as to how it works. If you let's sidestep how it works and just presuppose that when you visualize something, sometimes seemingly strange things can occur that somehow you meet that experience in your life, regardless of let's sidestep, regardless of how it comes around. But somehow the more you visualize something, the more likely you are to meet that in your experience. So therefore, if that's the case, if we are giving our attention annoyingly to the stuff that we don't have. So I'm really, you know, I, I, I really want a new car. I'm really hacked off at this car that I've got. there. It's always breaking down. All, and then all the attention is on what you don't want. Then if that is a, actually a, a, something that reflects life itself, then that's what you're going to get more of. Because what this law of attraction seems to say is you get more of what you give most of your attention to. So therefore, it's a no-brainer really then. Let's give more attention to the stuff that you really think would be lovely to have in your life rather than the stuff that really kind of pisses you off. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I, let, let, let's talk a bit about some of the the subjects that I think are, um, well, I want to say the word brave, but I guess, you know, you're looking at this from a scientific lens and you're looking at the weight of evidence um, you know, using your years of training. And for you, I think it's uh, the impression I get from reading the book and, and listening to your words are that, you know, this is sort of stuff that should be more mainstream. It should be more accepted because we do have enough research to suggest that these things exist and we should we should be um, utilizing them, you know, in, in a personal capacity, but also uh, within healthcare as well. Well, let, let's start with um, Reiki. I, I can't remember if I told you the story, but um, one of my consultants when I was working in pediatrics in Brighton many years ago now, it was probably about seven or eight years ago, he actually had a Reiki practitioner come in uh, for the parents and the parents of the children that were, they were treating. And it wasn't, you know, in a medical ward, it was actually in a um, pediatric ICU as well. Uh, and it was really well embraced actually by, by parents, but he was a really firm believer in Reiki as a, as a, as a, as a mode of practice. So where, where does, for, for those of, uh, of us who haven't come across Reiki before, where, where does Reiki come from? And, and, and maybe we can go into why it's so dismissed and, and, and what sort of evidence there, there is to the contrary. It was founded by, a, a guy called, Mika, I think, Mikhail Yusui, you know, a hundred years or so ago, you know, and and he felt, he felt inspired during like a fast, a meditative retreat uh, to find a way to offer something freely to people that could benefit them. And he had the idea, I think, based on, you know, 
thousands of years of knowing what, what had gone on in the ancient worlds and stuff. And he came up with this concept of Reiki, where he would just really put his hands on or just above people. And he started giving it freely to people. And it was having really, really profound effects. And it, and it just gathered momentum over the years uh, until it's beginning to become really properly scientifically tested. And and, and this is why you're finding it coming coming into hospitals. A similar one I remember came across some research at a study at Bryn Mawr Hospital, a large hospital in Pennsylvania. And they were approached to con to be part of a Reiki study uh, for people who had total knee replacements, which is one of the most common operations in the United States. And initially they were very sceptical about allowing a Reiki study in a professional environment, like professional clinical environment, but they eventually allowed it to take place and and basically everyone went through the same treatment but half of the patients additionally received reiki and the reduction in pain in those who had reiki as well as everything else the only difference was reiki everything else plus reiki versus everything else and the reductions in pain of those who had reiki were so significant the hospital were completely convinced they actually started their own reiki program and trained 10 of their own nurses to now to this day, now offer Reiki to any patients who would who elect to have it as given as an option. Would you like to receive Reiki as well? Not instead of, but as well as. <clears throat> oh, pardon me. And, and I thought that was a great example, a practical example. But now randomized controlled trials have been done on Reiki. Reiki compared with placebo. And your placebo is in, you can't, you know, it's not a tablet or anything. So it's called mimic Reiki. And what mimic Reiki is, is where a, an actor, a professional actor, has watched a video of a Reiki master and spent time mirroring their movements and saying, okay, the Reiki master puts her hands there and then they do, they do it for, like, say, 30 seconds. So, so what the actor is going, put the hand in, they go one, two, three, and they're counting in their heads. And then they say the Reiki master takes two steps to the left and, that, and they, so they do the same thing. And what even randomized controlled trials show is even comparing against mimic Reiki, i.e. placebo, uh, Reiki has been highly effective for reducing pain, uh, improving symptoms of anxiety and depression, and improving quality of life across a range of different conditions, including things like cancer. You know, so, so there is some really strong, even statistical evidence emerging uh, nowadays. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it, it's super interesting. And, you, you know, you describe it as a type of biofield energy therapy, which is generally dismissed. I mean, even sort of broaching the topic, I think, is uncomfortable for a lot of people. Um, I mean, how, how how do you go about dealing with, with skeptics? I mean, there's a couple of studies there that you, you've, you've just talked about. But how how do we sort of shake off that that perception of um how this is all sort of to use your word woo woo and uh, and and you know sort of start embracing these these different therapies because it it, it is um for for a conventionally trained medic it it is quite difficult to have these conversations in in the sort of cloud of, of judgment of, of your peers yeah for me first of all empathy combined with science, because you find people are sceptical. They're not sceptical because they try to be nasty. They're sceptical because some, some doctors, for example, are sceptical because they're worried that 
someone might choose someone who has pain. The pain might be masking something more serious and they might go to a Reiki practitioner instead of seeing a doctor. And so there's an inbuilt scepticism that isn't being unkind. It's saying we really need to know for sure. We need to see the evidence. So, so first of all, for me, it's empathy and understanding that you have a valid concern. And so I'm not just going to, you know, say all this stuff without taking into account your, your concern. But when I bring science in, one of the first things I, I find I have to introduce is the term biofield because biofield, because it's, you know, I wouldn't bother using that term if it wasn't for the fact that Reiki is classified as a biofield therapy. So because it's classified, I, I find that requires an explanation. And, you know, a biofield is just a field of energy like electricity or magnetism that's generated by a biological process rather than a wall socket. And it's funny because, you know, I, I, I love to learn. So I've been studying for five years uh, 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 with the Open University in the UK for a degree in mathematics and physics because I just love to continue to learn. And I actually learned that term as part of my physics modules, one of my, a biofield. It's, it's just a distinction between, a, we call we, you plug your iPhone into the wall and we call it electricity, but it's actually an electric field, which generates a magnetic field that electricity and magnetism go hand in hand. But if that electric or magnetic field is generated by a biological process, for example, the movement of sodium or calcium or potassium or something in and out of cells, then that's called a biofield to, to really to make that distinction between the source of the field. So I find sometimes when I bring that up, it begins to make more sense. It doesn't, the term biofield loses its woo-woo title because it is an actual physical distinction as you, you have to make a distinction, what is the source of the field? And, and a good way to think about biofield therapies is let's say I have a plate of food and I want to heat that food up. Then I would put that food in a warm environment. So, the, so what I'm doing is I'm changing the temperature field and that's like, again, that's a real physics concept. That's the that's the space around the substance, the food here that has that has a temperature measurement. So it's called the temperature field, and it 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 changes depending on the environment. And so if I change the temperature field, then that changes the temperature of the food inside it. So there's always a correlation between the food itself, what's inside the food, and the temperature field on the outside. If I want to cool the food down, I put it in a cold temperature field. And so there's always a correlation. So the idea behind biofuel therapies is there's a correlation between the state of the body and the electric or magnetic field that's generated by the body. So, for example, when, when you feel, here's something we know quite well from science, when you feel love, affection, empathy, warmth, compassion, the heart's magnetic field is larger and, and more easier to measure, it's stronger than it is if, than if you feel anxious or stressed or angry. And so there's a clear difference. And, and we, know that, we know that in science as well, because if you feel love or warmth or affection, blood, through, blood flow through the heart and into your muscles is very different from if you feel anxious or stressed or angry. So all the heart's magnetic field is showing you is yes, there is a correlation between the biofield. And so the underlying belief in scientists 
as to how a biofuel therapy works is a somehow an interaction between the the healer themselves, their biofield, and the biofield of the person who's on the table, and to an extent that that might be helping to change some of the more subtle systems in the body. And when I say subtle, the research in Reiki seems to suggest that there's a calming of the nervous system in people who are receiving Reiki. And if the nervous system is calmed rather than stressed or alert, then the body's pain management systems work more optimally. The immune system works more optimally. optimally. So the body's healing systems work more optimally. And I think that's why biofield therapies are classified in that way. And it's, they're not saying a Reiki practitioner heals a patient, but somehow interacts with a patient that allows the patient's own systems to do the work by themselves. And that's why Reiki doesn't you know, cure serious diseases but it, it certainly calms the body and allows the body to do what the body's capable of doing to an extent. You know, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes sense to me because uh, it reminds me of a conversation I had with um, Dr. Deepak Ravindran, who's a pain consultant. And um, you know, I think pain has been misunderstood by uh, many pain consultants and many anesthetists for, for decades. And now there's a new accepted understanding of how pain is the, um, uh, the, the reception of, uh, certain chemicals and actually the perception of pain is, is very much in the brain. And so that makes it malleable to things like, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, in addition to pain, uh, analgesics, et cetera. Uh, and, and this kind of reminds me of that because what you're describing, and I think the key word here is correlation. So there's definitely a correlation between this practice and a an enhanced outcome or, or a particular outcome and you can explain like you know the temperature field through the physical mechanisms or let's say love i think that's a really good sort of analogy there love if you look at it from a physical concrete lens my blood pressure increases my heart rate increases there's vasodilation of my fingertips you know i, I have a, a warm feeling inside but you can't describe or you, you can't explain love through the physical mechanisms uh, that are elicited when you're in love. Love is is like a it, it's an energy. It's a transfer. There, there's you know it, it's cognitive. It's it's environmental. There's there's a whole bunch of other things going on that we can't fully explain through the means of of uh, our, our current scientific methodology. So I I, I agree. I, I think there's definitely something there. There is a correlation. In my mind, I'm still trying to figure out, I think a lot of people are still trying to figure out exactly what is going on. Um, but it, but it's definitely something that, you know, if it's in combination with uh, and um, something that is uh, generally positive uh, and, and, and not in, in replacement of, then it's something that we should we should embrace. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And, and you know, in, in my scientific opinion, I, I, I think we, we don't fully understand the how as to how Reiki works. You know, I, I made a few, I made attempts at two possibilities as explanations in the book, but, you know, I don't think enough science has been done on, on the how, you know, so when I'm talking, you know, I, I was trying to explain why is there a difference between a, a Reiki master and someone who's just mimicking the movements. And you, you got it there with love because when you train in Reiki or any holistic therapy, part of the training is empathy, is to be in service for the person. Now, we do know 
that when you that that changes if you're feeling love, empathy, compassion for someone, and you're you, the person's on that couch, that 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 couch, that massage table, if that's how people do the reiki, then your predominant feeling there is love, it's empathy, it's compassion, and we do know that that changes blood flow and that changes not only how you feel, but there's a physical effect of that, but there's also a electromagnetic effect because you can't separate the physical process from the biofield. You, you just cannot separate. There is, whether that sounds woo-woo or we agree with it or not, you cannot separate the two. And so so my attempt at an explanation is was the reason why there's a difference between a Reiki master and a, someone, an actor, doing exactly the same thing is empathy, the love and the compassion. And I'm just suggesting that probably, and I might be wrong, but probably there's an interaction between the the Reiki master with the biofield of the person who's on the table that's somehow causing a calming effect on that person, which is therefore allowing their own systems to work a little bit more optimally. You know, and it's not a scientific definite because I don't think science has got as far as understanding the how. It's more just this seems to be what we, we've observed from studies on it, but we don't really know how. The, the, this is a really good point because it, it kind of brings me to another element of, of the book where uh, you draw an analogy between birds of flight using the Earth's magnetic field to direct travel, something that I don't think was well understood prior uh, by, by physicists. And now there is a general understanding about how they are attuned to um, the magnetic fields uh, 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 around the globe. Um, I wonder if we could talk a, a bit about that because it sort of uh, lends itself to a conversation around crystals, which, are, you know, if, it, if, if anyone's got a woo-woo detector, it's going off off the chain right now, you know? So, <laughs> so and I, I, you know, I, 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 just, just to, to be um, sort of uh, as honest as possible, my understanding of crystals is minimal. And I've always thought of it as something like, you know, ha- holds no sort of bearing in science. But my family, you know, particularly coming from an Indian background where we have a lot of Ayurvedic traditions, you know, there are lots of things that we do and the explanations that we have for them that wouldn't be classed as scientific, but I embrace. So, you know, wh- whether it's crystals, whether it's uh, empathy, whether it's a belief in uh, certain fields, you know, I, I, I'm really open-minded uh, about it, but I, I'd love to hear your take on that. Cause I, I actually, uh, I had Jim Al Khalili on the podcast, professor Jim Al Khalili on the podcast. He's a esteemed physician. He does the life sciences on radio Four. his book. Uh, actually talks about, um, birds of flight and using the earth's magnetic field to direct travel. So I, I yeah, I, I find this, uh, uh, absolutely fascinating. And I wonder if there are some similarities within our own bodies. It, there is actually, and it's a very good example of something that used to be called woo-woo and, and you know, really dismissed as nonsense. Uh, even people, brave scientists investigating it were, were kind of mocked and, and laughed at, you know, ridiculous idea. Yeah. And it's now what I call true-woo. And I, I make that distinction. A lot of things that we call woo-woo are actually true-woo. <laughs> They're actually... I made up that term true, <laughs> meaning there is actually science available, but people who call it woo-woo just don't know that that science is available. Uh, and so I, I make that kind of distinction. This is one of them. And it's actually called the avian magnetic compass. Now, the reason for it is in the brain of birds and humans as well, we have a mineral called magnetite, uh, which contains iron. 
And but birds also have a a pigment in their retinas called cryptochrome. And what the combination of magnetite and humans don't have cryptochrome, but we have magnetite. And and what the the magnetite and the cryptochrome do, the magnetite, first of all, makes birds subtly aware of the Earth's magnetic field. Because the Earth's magnetic field runs, you know, right where you're sitting right now, it runs completely flat along the ground, completely horizontal. It it starts at the North Pole and it comes out the, the top of the Earth and it goes round like that. So wherever you're standing, it's completely flat. Right, but the uh, the further north or south you go, the the, incl- the angle dips depending on how far north you are or south you are. There's an inclination, um, a dip angle depending, and that's how. And so, what cryptochrome does is it gives the birds a color representation of the lines of the magnetic field. You can't see them, but even the human brain. Recent current recent research at Caltech actually found the human brain detects shifts to the to the orientation of the magnetic field. They put humans inside magnetically sealed chambers, simulated the Earth's magnetic field, and then shifted the orientation. And every single person's brain reacted to it, even though consciously we weren't aware. But the human brain absolutely instantly detected the shift in the angle of it. But anyway, so we're sensitive as well. It's just not something we've, we use because we predominantly rely on eyesight and, and sound and stuff. But anyway, birds sense the Earth's magnetic field, but cryptochrome allows them to see it. And scientists now believe birds see the lines of the Earth's magnetic field and the dip angle of it that tells them how far north or south they are, uh, like we would see a road. And to really prove that concept, scientists created this massive big, and they put them in this massive big aircraft hangar, and they electromagnetically shielded it, and they simulated the Earth's magnetic field, and the birds were flying according to it, and then the scientists rotated it they rotated the angle of it, and all of a sudden the birds just went, and they changed instantly. The whole lot of them, as if the the road had just turned that way. And and so now we know, factually, you know, as woo as it sounds, it's actually true that the avian magnetic compass is actually how birds fly south for the winter and end up back not only in the same town, but on the same branch of the same tree in the same garden that they left all those months ago. And the reason why they get back there, a large part of the reason isn't just visually looking at the environment, but actually following the Earth's magnetic field. You know, some uh, whales and dolphins do it as well. And some type, some fish also follow the Earth's magnetic field. They use the, the currents of it and the movements of it, just, just like you and I have learned over time to walk, to follow a path. And why, why would you walk off into the grass when there's a path there? So birds over eons, without having paths that humans have built, they've just learned to use the natural environment itself. And part of that is the avian magnetic compass. Yeah, it's incredible that. And so are there, are there similarities w- within our brains? Do we have uh, magnetite or s- certain other elements in our, in our brains that we've, w- we've discovered? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We have magnetite in the human brain. In fact, MRI scans recently mapped it and found it's very extensive with heightened concentrations in the pineal gland, but it's very extensive in, in the human brain. And that was that research was was connected to a, or an extension of the Caltech research that showed that we are magnetically sensitive to the a change in the Earth's magnetic field. And so scientists decided to see if we can map it. The, the magnetite using MRI and absolutely found concentrations all the way, all throughout the brain. So we are magnetically sensitive, but the people who did some of that research 
wrote that we've just learned to not use it because we use our other senses. Uh, but it's not that we can't. It, it's back, It's there, but we just it's not a predominant thing for us. We drive our cars and use road signs. Mm. You know, we don't walk along and go, I feel that's north, you know, <laughs> whereas a bird does. Yeah. Because birds don't have cars and road signs. So we've just learned over X, X amount of time, and I don't know how long, but we've learned to use different ways to navigate. But that system is still there. We just don't use it. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like me uh, adopting Google Maps uh, so much so that I probably wouldn't be able to direct myself around London now. I've sort of like, you know, just completely... Uh, handed over my my compass skills to to the app on my phone and uh, you know th- this sort of s- speaks to uh the the lack of uh of of practice uh, around intuition like i i i'm i always talk about you know mindfully eating making sure that you're aware of every single bite and you're chewing properly and you're not distracted and how this can have benefits in terms of your digestive process and reducing bloating and all that kind of stuff. But I feel that we need to be a lot more intuitive just in general because we have a lot of artificial environments around us. And so it's one of those practices that we should we should definitely uh, be leaning into. And on that note of um, perception, uh, one of the things that I was absolutely fascinated to hear about was how my dog has a completely different visual system and they don't see she doesn't see as many colors as me or she sees things that i see uh, uh, green as as like beige or, or brown or whatever it might be and there are other uh, uh animals there are other beings that have heightened vision and can see even more colors so i wonder if you could talk to us a bit about that and how that might sort of um uh, conjure up ideas of like whether we can see auras and, and energy fields and, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, so, so humans are, are called trichromats and that means three colours. We have three types of photoreceptors uh, or cones in, in our eyes that allow us to see the range of colours that we see. You know, so the RGB, uh, so that, that's, that reflects the cone, the photoreceptors we have. But dogs only have two. Dogs are called dichromats. And if if a dog looks at grass, like you say, it looks beige to a dog, and a dog sees a rainbow, it's kind of grey, dark blue, light blue, beige, into a wee bit deep, deeper shade of beigey brown. And a dog has never seen a rainbow that we see. So the question is, you know, who sees correctly? And the answer is nobody sees correctly because nobody actually sees reality as it is. All we see is a representation of reality that's dependent upon our perceptual uh, process, our perceptual abilities. So some species, like foraging insects, for example, they have four, some of them have five and six cones or photoreceptors, meaning they see an alien landscape that is completely invisible. In fact, many of those species see ultraviolet uh, and right into the ultraviolet. In other words, when you look at a flower, you just see the outline of the flower, but they see ultraviolet plumes that are even related to how the Earth's magnetic field is interacting. Because there's a thing called, again, it used to be more, used to be considered woo-woo, but it's true, plant magnetoreception. You know, plants are very... And the reason why scientists are studying the sensitivity of plants to the Earth's magnetic field is because they're, they're, everyone knows we're looking at maybe in 50 years, could we uh, put a colony on the moon or on Mars? Now, despite 
differences in soil, you have differences in magnetic field. So it's called plant magnetoreception, the research into can plants sustain themselves, not just in soils, but in a different strength of, of magnetic field. And so, and so some foraging insects actually see not only the magnetic field, fish, the, the zebra fish, for example, they actually see the magnetic field and the interaction with the ultraviolet. So it, to a, no human's ever seen that, that kind of stuff. So who sees correctly? And again, no one sees correctly. We just see the, the limits of our perceptual abilities. Uh, and so I think it's absolutely fascinating. And coming back to what you said about even psychic auras, a, a neuroscientist called, Ram, called Valiano Ramakandran it demonstrated that uh, there was a, a, an autistic child who his mother thought there must be a way of helping my child to understand people because he wasn't able to understand or relate to people. So his mum taught him a colour emotion code that if he saw someone smiling, he was to give that a colour. And if he saw someone frowning, he was to give that a colour. If he saw someone with facial expressions of anger, he would give that a colour. And they worked out a code for every facial expression, what that means. And here is the colour. And he was to picture the colour in his mind. And it just allowed him to understand people a bit better. Because kids like colours, you know, rather than intellectually saying, that means angry. It, it was easier for the child to picture it. But what was amazing is the brain is so neuroplastic that Ramakandran did a study and he proved that this child, what happened to the child at a certain age is the colour, and this is what Ramakandran found, the colour processing region called V4 had actually integrated into part of what's called the mirror neuron system that allows us to understand people's facial expression so that the boy actually physically now saw an aura, an envelope of colour that, that appeared around anyone whose colour actually reflected the person's emotional state because the person's emotional state is always reflected in our facial expressions. It's why you smile when you're happy, you frown when you're sad. You know, so what he actually saw was a visual representation of people's states. So he could actually tell you how a person's feeling by the envelope of colour. And as woo-woo as it sounds, Ramakandran started to study and he found that this, this overlap had occurred in the brain. And he said, everyone's brain's capable of that. But it's just such a woo-woo concept that no one's willing to investigate it and see if we could train ourselves. And all it is was training ourselves to perceive something in a way the brain is capable of doing. But we've just not tra trained ourselves to do that because it sounds too woo-woo and out there. But, it, but he said it might actually help children on the autism spectrum to better understand their world and better learn to interact because it gives them a way of perceiving in a way that's more friendly to them. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, it, it definitely makes a lot of sense to me. And I think on, on that sort of note of, of training one's brain, after listening to the book and, and just sort of uh, analyzing my own behaviors, you know, walking around London, uh, it's an urbanized environment, you, you almost feel like... Um, uh, not not negative energy, but sort of uh, sometimes abrasive energy to other people. And what I've been trying to do is practice a lot more sort of uh, meta, like, you know, loving kindness and, and trying to spread that just in my mind, not literally going up to people and, and saying, I love you, <laughs> like, have, a, have a great day, but just in my mind uh, and, and, and conjuring up sort of hero stories about other people. And I, 
you know, as I practice it, even after 24 hours, you know, I, I just felt a lot better on myself and I'm training my brain to sort of be a lot more um, uh, pleasant uh, and, 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 and create my own sort of uh, positive mental environment. I wonder what you practice every day, given that, you know, you've been in this for, for so long and, you know, you've written a book on kindness. What, what are sort of like um, your, your, your tools uh, in, in your toolbox when it comes to practicing this self-care uh, your, yourself on a daily basis? Exactly that, meta. I, I do exactly the same as you. You know, I, I do meta meditation every day. You know, I think of people, may you be happy and well and safe and may you feel at ease. But I also do that in the street. Not, not every day, not all the time. But if I'm aware that my state isn't how I'd like it to be, then the, my, my go-to in my mind is meta. You know, may you be happy. And I even see people looking stressed or upset or in a hurry, and I say, may you be happy in my mind and well and safe and may you feel at ease. And, and what happens, in fact, here's a reason why you can feel a bit kind of negative around negative people. It's called the emotional contagion, you know, and your brain, you have a mirror neuron system in the brain. It's cells in the brain that mirror people's facial expressions. So because people's facial expressions and body language betrays how they feel. It's called the emotional contagion, how we catch it. Because your mirror neuron system mirrors the expressions you see in people's faces. So if you walk by 25 people and 20 of them have angry faces, then the chances are by the time you get to the end of those 25 people, your mirror neuron systems distorted your facial expressions and you'll be frowning. Now, there's a correlation now between your facial expression and your brain chemistry. And very quickly, you will start to feel angry as well. You won't know, understand why you feel angry. But in large part, it comes down to the mirror neuron. It's not the only reason why this happens. There is some more subtle things, but mostly it's the mirror neuron system. So what, what you do with your meta and what I do is when you change your state, may you be happy, well and safe, you're no longer catching it from someone else. But what you start becoming is a projector and you start projecting and their mirror neuron system will catch how you feel. And the more people you pass, you pass through 20 by 25 people, at least some of those 25 people will capture and won't understand why, but they'll come away with a smile on their face. They won't understand why. And that smile on their face will actually change the thoughts that they're thinking because there's always a correlation between facial expressions and how you feel, your, your outer state and your inner state. And you actually affect people without realizing by doing meta. And it's, a, it's partly how kindness is contagious. I do exactly the same thing on purpose because I know that's how it works. But my, my, my self-care as well is I, I, I'm aware of how I feel and I try to take steps to do things in my life that increase, that improve my state. And some of that for me is finding things in my life that have meaning and purpose and do more of them. Even if it means that I'm really, really busy, I don't have time to do that. But if I'm really, really busy and I choose the busyness over the things always that make me feel good, then I'll be less effective at doing the things that I'm doing. But if I can make the time for things, I play tennis most days. I live in Dunblane. It's kind of expected, the home of Andy and Jamie Murray. Uh, but I get a lot of enjoyment out of that. And playing it against other people in the leagues gives meaning. It's meaningful to, for me. And even though it takes time away from a busy working day, because I'm feeling better, that positive feeling state I have enhances everything that I do. And there's lots of research that actually shows that exact thing. Do more of what makes you feel good on the inside and you'll find you'll be much more effective in everything you do on the outside uh, as well. So, But I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Meta because that's exactly what I do. 
as well. I do it as yeah. a practice in the house, but I also do it out in the street if I feel I have to. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Uh, I'm I'm definitely a fan, and uh, I'm a massive fan of you. I love the uh, I love the book. I love your energy. Uh, I just uh, yeah, I'm in awe of the number of books that you've published as well. It's incredible. <laughs> Well, I'm a fan of you. I, I use your cookbooks. <laughs> <laughs> brilliant. I love it. David, this is brilliant. I, uh, I And look, we're not going to do any more podcasts until we can actually uh, do it in person because I, I feel like I, I'm missing out on uh, the uh, the energy uh, <laughs> of, 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 of being in person, even though I know after reading your book that it can exist uh, uh, universally as well. So yeah, no, I really appreciate you, you taking the time and uh, yeah, I can't, can't wait to do this again at some point in the future. My pleasure. It's been an absolute pleasure again. So thanks very much for having me on. I've really enjoyed myself. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. You can find all this information and more at thedoctorskitchen.com. Remember, you can watch this on YouTube and you can sign up for the Eat, Listen, Read newsletter. Go check it out on thedoctorskitchen.com forward slash newsletter. I'll see you here next time.